Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. This Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on a shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from NHK Japan, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, Radio Havana Cuba, and Russia's Sputnik Radio. We will begin with NHK World Radio Japan. COVID cases are rising at a rapid rate all across Japan. The U.S. Secretary of State warned China again about the South China Sea, followed by a U.S. Navy destroyer streaming through the area. More charges have been filed against Aung San Suu Kyi in Myanmar to prolong her detention. European Union leaders unveiled a plan to tackle climate change by reducing greenhouse gases by 55% by 2030, banning gasoline and diesel vehicles by 2035. Japanese carmakers will accelerate their goal of all-electric cars. NHK Japan. We start with Tokyo's latest coronavirus setback in the final days of Olympic preparations. Daily case numbers have climbed to the highest point in nearly half a year, fueled at least in part by a highly contagious variant. And it's not just an issue here in the capital. Cases are increasing again in the Kansai region and in Hokkaido, Aichi and Fukuoka prefectures. Infections are once again spreading all across Japan. Tokyo reported 1,149 new cases on Wednesday. The tally surpasses even the peak of May's fourth wave. Officials hope to fight a steady rise in weekly averages with current emergency measures. The IOC president said COVID-19 will not stand in the way of the Olympics as he met with the Japanese prime minister. But the virus is already tripping up athletes. Some have been forced to suspend training in Japan after coming into contact with the virus. And others have had to delay travel because of coronavirus conditions outside of Japan. Now elsewhere in Asia, case numbers are breaking new records. Many, many nations are feeling the effect of the Delta variant. This is the first time over a 1,000 cases were reported in metropolitan areas. The U.S. Secretary of State is warning Chinese leaders to stop intimidating their neighbors around the South China Sea. Cholabansa Narula at our bureau in Bangkok has the details. Anthony Blinken says Chinese leaders are upsetting the maritime order, and he says they should stop what he called their provocative behavior. Blinken released a statement marking the fifth anniversary of a ruling by the Court of Arbitration in The Hague that rejected Beijing's claims to much of the sea. Philippine leaders had accused the Chinese of building islands in their waters and threatening their ships. Officials in Brunei, Malaysia, Taiwan and Vietnam also lay claim to the sea. 
U.S. naval commanders say they're committed to upholding freedom of navigation. A U.S. destroyer steamed through the area after Blinken released a statement. Chinese military leaders responded by sending their forces to warn and drive it away. Zhao pointed back at U.S. leaders, saying they're abusing international law. To Myanmar, lawyers for Aung San Suu Kyi say prosecutors have filed four additional corruption charges against her. The military is apparently trying to prolong detention of the ousted de facto leader by filing additional charges. The lawyers said on Tuesday that court procedures for the new charges will start on July 22nd, but they don't know the details because they have no access to related documents. The country's state-run media reported last month that Aung San Suu Kyi illegally received $600,000 in cash and about 11 kilograms of gold from a regional government official. The media also reported that she misused her position to enable a foundation she runs to rent properties at lower-than-market prices. The new charges may be linked to these allegations. The former state councillor has already been indicted for six charges, including illegally importing walkie-talkies. Trials have begun for five of the charges. But they're making slower progress than the lawyers expected, as prosecutors are submitting additional evidence. European Union leaders have unveiled their plan to tackle climate change. It involves a massive change to the vehicles allowed on the road. Members of the European Commission set a baseline of 1990. By 2030, they want to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases by 55%. Europe is now the very first continent that presents a comprehensive architecture to meet our climate ambitions. We have the goal, but now we present the roadmap to how we are going to get there. That roadmap includes a proposal to ban sales of new cars powered by gasoline or diesel by 2035. They want drivers behind the wheels of electric vehicles with zero emissions. Automakers argue it would be unfair to ban combustion engines altogether. They say poorer countries don't have the means or the infrastructure to support electric cars. European leaders also want to tax countries for imports of goods of products that raise emissions. That includes steel, cement and electricity. Japan's auto manufacturers are watching those developments in Europe. They have special concerns as they hold a competitive edge in hybrid vehicles, a class covered by the proposed ban. The carmakers expect the EU initiative would prompt them to revamp their lineups and accelerate their push to go fully electric. They have already set new targets in response to global moves to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Toyota aims for 40% of its vehicles in Europe to be electric and fuel cell powered by 2030. The remainder will be hybrids. Nissan plans for its entire lineup for Europe and other major markets to be EVs and hybrids by the early 2030s. Hybrids have both electric and combustion engines. Honda has global plans to launch an entirely electric and fuel cell lineup by 2040. The companies say they're waiting to see if EU member states greenlight the ambitious climate proposals.
Those reports were from NHK Radio Japan. They are now heard from 9.30 to 10 p.m. at 7.245 and 7.355 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. All the times I announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. Next, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. More details and analysis about the new European Union climate plan to be carbon neutral by 2050. Some worry about the included carbon tax, and activists say the plan does not go far enough. Brief reports on riots in South Africa, France announcing mandatory COVID vaccinations for all healthcare workers, and protests in Cuba which result in dozens of arrests. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. It is ambitious and it is a challenge to the rest of the world. Today, the European Union laid out plans to cut greenhouse gas emissions 55% by the end of the decade. It calls for phasing out the sale of petrol and diesel cars by the year 2035. And it also calls for a carbon tax that both the U.S. and China oppose. Critics say the plan places too much of a burden on consumers, especially in poor European countries. Environmental activists say the plan doesn't go far enough. The EU aims to make Europe the first climate-neutral continent by 2050. That means no more carbon should be admitted into the atmosphere than what's absorbed, for example, by forests. As a first step on this journey, EU leaders have pledged to cut emissions by 55 percent by 2030. But critics say these cuts are nowhere near enough to meet the goals of the 2015 Paris Agreement. Others fear less wealthy EU countries and many of its poorer citizens won't be able to afford the measures. The EU, though, has promised to help lower-income households and fight climate change by introducing a package of new laws. All right, we want to cross over now to Tim Gore in Stockholm, Sweden. He is the head of the Low Carbon and Circular Economy Program at the Institute for European Environmental Policy. That's a sustainability think tank that's based in Brussels. This is an ambitious plan that Europe is presenting to itself and the world. Is it what is needed to meet the promises and the pledges of the Paris Climate Agreement? This is the EU uh, not only putting on the table a new strengthened climate reduction target by 2030, 55% uh, reductions below 1990 levels, but critically also setting out a comprehensive plan to actually achieve it. So that's a world first. And what this package is really built on is the polluter pays principle. It's going to extend carbon pricing to around two-thirds of emissions in the EU. Now, that's a good thing as long as we make sure that the revenues it generates, and it's going to generate about 100 billion euros per year by the end of the decade, as long as we spend those revenues well, we can both cut the emissions and reduce inequalities in Europe at the same time. Yeah, you say making the polluter pay. Um, I know a lot of people watching will wonder, does that mean making the consumer pay more as well? Well, ultimately it will, because in the end, if you ask business to change what they're doing to take account of the carbon emissions uh, that they're producing, 
what they tend to do is pass that on to consumers. So it doesn't matter in the end whether you try and regulate or whether you set a carbon price. Consumers will have to pay. Now, the advantage of doing this with a carbon price is that you will generate substantial revenues uh, in the process. So the really critical question is how you then use those revenues to make sure that the poorest citizens are not bearing the burden. Mm. So I think it's important that the Commission today has set out some initial plans for a climate social fund that's going to generate billions and direct those towards some of the poorest households uh, across the EU to help them with the transition. This is all about, you know, uh, embedding fairness at the heart of the proposals. I think what we've had today is a start and now we need to build on that. We are joined by Carl Friedrich Schleusner. He is a climate physicist at Humboldt University in Berlin. Canada, Russia, Spain, extreme heat waves, record temperatures in many parts of the world. Is this climate change or is this just weather? Well, it's both, but it's definitely climate change. One thing that we know for sure is that climate change is fueling heat wave and making them more severe. And that's exactly what we are seeing and also exactly what we can link with scientific methods to climate change. And we are seeing, in particular in the case of the Northwestern heat wave in the US and Canada, that we are not just loading the dice and making extreme heat waves more frequent, we are also seeing unprecedented events that wouldn't have happened without climate change. What are you expecting now in the coming years, given the current situation? Well, colleagues of mine, just to keep at the example, have done an analysis on the characteristics of this heat wave and why this today is indeed a very rare and extreme event uh, at a warming of two degrees above pre-industrial levels. Um, such an event could happen every five to 10 years. So by, that's by mid-century in a couple of decades. And I think it's illustrating that the climate crisis is not some, something that's happening in the far future. It's something that's very much upon us. CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere being the highest in the last 3 million years and temperatures as we record them probably the highest in the last 12,000 years. So in the time when humans started to do agriculture and civilization started to prosper. Authorities in South Africa say that more than 70 people have been killed in some of the worst violence the country has seen in years. The unrest erupted last week after former President Jacob Zuma turned himself into police. He is now serving a prison sentence for contempt of court. He and his supporters are demanding his release. Back here in Europe, France is tightening coronavirus rules in a bid to head off a new surge in infections driven by that highly contagious Delta variant. President Emmanuel Macron has ordered all healthcare workers to get vaccinated by mid-September or they could lose their job. Starting next month, bars, restaurants, trains and planes will also be off limits to people who do not have a special COVID-19 pass. President Macron says that this is a new race against time to prevent a fourth wave. Thousands have rallied in France to protest the country's new coronavirus measures. Police in Paris fired tear gas to disperse crowds who opposed the decision to make vaccinations for healthcare workers mandatory. Proof of vaccination or negative COVID test will also be required for many indoor public spaces. In Cuba, dozens of people have been arrested after some of the biggest anti-government demonstrations in decades. The exiled rights group Cubalex says as many as 150 people have been detained. Thousands have been taking to the streets to protest Cuba's economic crisis and its handling of the pandemic. Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, dw.com. On to Radio Havana, Cuba. 
the Cuban foreign minister accused the United States of directing the protest and being responsible for the economic crises among the Cuban people. Mexican President Obrador called for the lifting of the U.S. economic blockade of Cuba and criticized the media hype surrounding the protest in Cuba. More arrests have been made in connection with the assassination of the Haitian president last week. Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuban Foreign Minister Bruno Rodriguez Parrilla accused the U.S. government on Tuesday of direct involvement and great responsibility in the arrest that took place in several localities in Cuba last July the 11th. Addressing a press conference with national and international media at the headquarters of the Foreign Ministry, Rodriguez warned that Washington would be held accountable for the consequences that may result if the U.S. persisted with its policies of asphyxiation of Cuba and encouragement of irregular and disorderly migratory flows between the two countries. He pointed out that the strategy also includes calls for violent actions, aggressions against authorities, and magnicide. The island's top diplomat also referred to the permanent instigation by U.S. Senator from Florida, who encouraged the deployment of vessels to stage provocations near the island's territorial waters. Rodriguez cautioned the U.S. government that its irresponsible conduct may have grave consequences. To illustrate Washington's direct involvement in last Sunday's event, the foreign minister provided examples of preparations of a political and technological communicational operation aimed at sparking those actions. He denounced that the COS Cuba hashtag promoted on social media was first launched by a U.S. company based in Florida that recently received a certification authorizing it to receive state funds and legal validity to operate in the U.S. state. He also warned that the campaign called for humanitarian intervention in Cuba and those who ask for humanitarian intervention should be aware that they are asking for military intervention in Cuba in breach of the laws of the Caribbean island and of international law. The foreign minister also accused the Republican government of Florida of financing these anti-Cuba efforts. Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador on Monday called for the listing of the economic blockade against Cuba and criticized the unusual media hype surrounding the protests on the island. The truth is that if one wanted to help Cuba, the first thing that should be done is to suspend the blockade, as most of the countries of the world are requesting. That would be a true humanitarian gesture. No country in the world should be encircled Unblockaded. That is the most contrary thing there can be to human rights, said the Mexican president in his press conference. On tour in the state of Tabasco, Lopez Obrador indicated that there should be no interventionism and neither should the health situation of the Cuban people be used for political purposes. No politicization, no media campaigns, which are already happening worldwide. There are many countries with problems in Latin America, in the Caribbean. It is not only the case of Cuba. However, it is striking that there has been an unusual display of information, of course, promoted by those who do not agree with the policies of the government of Cuba, said the Mexican president. 
More arrests have been made in connection with last week's assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise. Christian Emmanuel Sanon is accused of working with the masterminds who plotted the killing after flying into Haiti on a private jet. He is believed to be a Haitian-born, Florida-based doctor. Police say he planned to assume the presidency and use the men involved in the killing as part of his security team. Haiti's police chief said his forces are working with Colombian officials. So far, 26 Colombians, including former soldiers, are suspected of being involved in the killing. 18 of them have been arrested, along with three Haitians. The arrested Colombians were reportedly recruited by a Miami area security firm entitled CTU Security. Five suspects remain at large. Two Haitian Americans who were arrested last week claim to have been acting as interpreters. The U.S. said it is sending senior FBI and DHS officials to Port Prince, but has so far denied requests to send troops. Meanwhile, unrest is growing in Haiti amid the political turmoil and the worsening economic crisis. Haiti is struggling to contain the coronavirus virus pandemic as the country has yet to acquire a single vaccine. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu, though they no longer update podcasts. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 6 p.m. to midnight at either 6000, 6060, or 6100. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report, or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal, or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please help me keep producing this weekly show, which is freely distributed to radio stations and the Internet. We will conclude with Sputnik Radio. Afshin Ratansi spoke with Oliver Stone about his new film, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. In this brief excerpt, Oliver discusses JFK's often overlooked campaigns for peace with the Soviet Union and Cuba prior to his assassination, the U.S. media ignoring congressional hearings following the first JFK movie, and Kennedy's anti-colonialist beliefs. Sputnik Radio. Oliver Stone, his platoon, born on the 4th of July, Snowden and Wall Street, educated generations. His groundbreaking work, JFK, turns 30 this year, and Stone is returning to the subject with a follow-up documentary, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, currently premiering at the Cannes Film Festival. Here we have a U.S. president in the White House backing uh, forces against the Cuban government. What is the relevance to the current White House of this documentary? Well, I, I think the, the relevance is that the main point we were trying to make in the documentary was that John Kennedy was a warrior for peace in all forms. And among the many things he was doing when he was killed was reaching out to Cuba to end this embargo, to make a detente with Castro. It looked good. And he was also at the same time making an overarching deal with Khrushchev of the Soviet Union. They signed the nuclear test ban treaty together, which is an amazing document. First time that the Soviets in the US signed a treaty of this nature. And the Cold War was, was theoretically coming to an end in 1963. Uh, so you can imagine where the world would be now. Instead, we have this retrograde policy where the U.S. has still got an embargo on Cuba 60 years later. And 
the news today is just another one in a long concurrent crises events that happen every few years. And the evidence in the new film, let's just remind our audience how you ended up testifying in Congress and for what has been called actually the one of the strongest open government uh, laws ever passed by Congress. JFK Records Act was passed in the wake of the uh, the movie which created a, a, for a furor. A Congre- I testified in Congress and they, they passed the act and it allowed them to declassify documents and do some limited investigation. It lasted for four years from 94 to 98 and uncovered quite a substantial bit of work. But unfortunately, the American media did not report it to the public. It was buried, forgotten in the memory hole that's become the JFK case. So in 2013, I was pretty frustrated when all the networks in the United States celebrating the 60th anniversary of Kennedy's assassination. None of them mentioned uh, the alternate theories or my film. And basically I was interviewed for almost an hour and a half by Tom Brokow of NBC and they cut it down to a 20, 30 second clip. It, it hasn't been, the media has not been balanced. They're still referring to the Warren Commission as if it's some kind of accurate document. Whereas there's been three official investigations resulting from that murder. We are trying to say, okay, let's be honest. Here is what we found. John Kennedy, he was the last president to really work for peace in the world. He was looking, as I said, for this detente and he was withdrawing among other things from Vietnam. This has been disputed when the film came out in 91. And now we have more evidence from the declassified files that it was definitely happening because Robert McNamara wrote a book In 95, Robert McNamara was his defense secretary, and he said that without doubt, Kennedy was withdrawing, and even if we were to lose that war, we would withdraw. That the Vietnamese were gonna handle this war from now on. After that, McGeorge Bundy, who was a national security advisor for Kennedy, came out with his book and said the same thing. Although Bundy was against the withdrawal, he definitely said it. Also, we have a phone call in there from Lyndon Johnson, bawling out McNamara and saying, you know, I never wanted to withdraw like you guys. I I never agreed with you and Kennedy when you said you. We have that phone call on tape. So this evidence is intractable that American historians have been denying it, you know, really denying it. Because those on the left around the world will think of Kennedy and go, well, just look at the record. He increased the number of advisors to Vietnam. He uh, uh, didn't sign the Civil Rights Act. He, uh, he was the instigator of uh, macho uh, brinkmanship with uh, Khrushchev of the Cuban Missile Crisis. On the, other hand, you can, which, on the other hand, you could say he and Khrushchev came, saved the world because the generals were pushing Kennedy to go into Cuba to invade to drop a nuke on Cuba. There was a lot of pressure on Kennedy for years. For three years, Kennedy made 11 or 12 decisions not to send combat troops. He did send advisors because he, that was done because of the Eisenhower administration's involvement in the Vietnam War. Kennedy was in Vietnam in 1954 as a young senator and saw that he was an anti-colonialist and he saw the French army struggling and he thought it was a ridiculous war. He made a speech about Algeria, condemning the French armies in their war in Algeria. Colonialism did not work for him. Remember, he was Irish, he wasn't English. He had an attitude of rebellion against the colonial world. He did not want to see this continue. He had great relations with Africa, 
He was upset beyond belief at Lumumba's murder. CIA was involved. Kennedy was working for peace on every level. Indonesia, he had a great relationship with. Vietnam, to him, was a mistake, and he, was, he had to withdraw quietly. He, had to, he couldn't put it up for a vote because he was going to come up for a vote in November 64, which is a few months away. He went about this deliberately, signed an, an order to withdraw the first 1,000 troops by Christmas 63. The two days after he was killed was contradicted by Johnson, Lyndon Johnson. So any historian who says there was some continuity between Lyndon Johnson and John Kennedy, it's rubbish. Oliver Stone, thank you. That interview was by Afshin Ritansi from his program called Going Underground, heard on Sputnik Radio, the current name for the Voice of Russia, available online at rt.com. The 30-minute interview with Oliver Stone is available on the Going Underground channel on YouTube. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please take a moment and make a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 25th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.